Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. This week is our 100th episode and there was only one possible guest. CEO Sean Healy takes some time out from his very busy schedule to chat to me about the history of Social Justice Ireland, its past successes, its present reality and its future hopes. We hope you enjoy it. So, Sean, our 100th episode, so you were the only guest that it would be possible to have on the 100th episode. I'm looking forward to this now, to the the history of Social Justice Ireland. So if we begin at the beginning and the why of Social Justice Ireland, the genesis of Social Justice Ireland, if you can bring me back to the start. Sounds like we should go back to like Fado, Fado, you know, (laughs) or Once Upon a Time or something. In the, just at the start of the 1980s, the religious congregations in Ireland decided that they should be involved in issues to do with justice. And one of the things they did was they they had an overarching body called, it had a dreadful title at the time called the Conference of Major Religious Superiors. And uh, they they decided they should set up a justice commission of uh, people who were interested and so on. And uh, in 1982, they hired two people. They hired a Jesuit called Bill McKenna, who had worked in industrial relations and stuff like that, both here in Ireland and in in the UK. And they also hired Bridget Reynolds, Imara's sister, as sort of the the second person in the office. And they started working on issues around justice that were of interest to the religious congregations. In 1983, they recruited me. Okay, now Bill McKenna stayed with uh, uh, with the uh, Justice Office, as it was called at the time, Justice Commission, uh, stayed with it until the late eighties when he retired. Now he was he was into his eighties when he retired, so you know he was he was well ready for retirement. You know, but um, he was a terrific, terrifically insightful person with very well qualified in economics and had this background of having been involved in industrial relations and he'd worked in the College of Industrial Relations for 30 years and a whole lot of different background uh, sort of experiences of that kind uh, training shop stewards and all sorts of stuff like that you know so he did a good background. Bridget Reynolds came from like sort of a mission tradition uh, she was a scientist herself but um, was very interested in justice and women's ish, uh, women's organizations women's empowerment and uh, had worked in um, in Africa for the best part of 10 years on those kinds of issues. Did, did this continued? Uh, went into the public arena in, in the mid-80s, took up issues of different types, and eventually the organization changed its name to the Conference of Religious of Ireland, became known as CORI, and the Justice Commission was still a religious kind of driven organization, and it was it was called CORI Justice. Uh, so that was okay. Uh, it be, it was became a one of the original eight organisations in the community and voluntary sector who formed the first community and voluntary pillar, if you like, the first iteration of that in what was then the social partnership structure, and that was in 1996, and uh, the second half of 96, and there was a new agreement uh, signed off on at the end of that year. Which brought it was uh, brought brought the partnership up to the year two thousand, and from then on, uh, it was part of that process. They, that continued until the end of the first decade, or towards the end of the first decade of the millennium, of the new millennium, two uh, thousands, and then there was a kind of a, a fairly serious implosion, if you like, in. Uh, the core uh, situation with the Ryan report and the responses to it and a whole lot of other stuff. So out of that came a decision that Corey wasn't in a position to continue the work that was being done, whether it was on social dialogue or enabling and empowering and doing a lot of other things that we can come back to uh, the work that we've been doing, uh, including running an, an MA program, that it was decided Corey was no longer in a position to kind of do those and deliver those. So basically, Corey made a decision to close down its Corey justice. But 
Bridget Reynolds and myself decided that we should then operationalize a proposal that had been discussed on and off for the best part of 10 years previously, which was to sort of become a different kind of organization in the sense of not just a religious organization or, or an organization of religious sisters and brothers and priests, uh, but rather that it should be open to anybody. And um, so what we did in effect was we set up Social Justice Ireland and it's a totally independent standalone organization. It doesn't uh, claim to represent any particular religious point of view or whatever. It is supported by some um, Catholic religious congregations, but the vast uh, amount of its funding, uh, the vast majority of its funding comes from other sources now. And it works as um, a company, really. It's an an NGO, non-governmental organization, and it's in the public arena. Anybody can join it as long as they're committed to delivering a just society and working for justice or supporting those who are working for justice. And um, what we have then is we have an AGM every year. We elect a board. There's elections to the board at every AGM. A third of the board rotates off every AGM. The, the very the, the almost, not quite all, but almost all the membership of the board are lay people. There's a 50-50 split between men and women. And it also covers quite a, 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 the age range from the, there are people on there from their 20s to their 70s. And there's quite a geographical spread. We have people on the board from Sligo and uh, Cork and Waterford and Wexford and uh, various other places, and uh, as well as Dublin, of course. Everybody who's a member, uh, it's a one vote, one person, one vote organization, equality, employer, and all those kinds of things, okay? Its policies are developed by the board and the team that's working there. And uh, the AGM validates all of that. And we have a website, socialjustice.ie, and all, our, all the information is up there. People can, who we are, who the members of the board are, what our constitution looks like and what our accounts look like. And they're all up there, everything you want to know about the organization. But also up there is the work we do. And that, I suppose, is more important in a way. And it also tells you a fair bit about why we do what we do and uh, who we're targeting and so on. So so that's like a very potted history of the question you asked me was, how do we get to be here? Like So basically, that's it. So it's that shift, as you said, from from faith-based to value-based. And that then informs the, the work that's done and the aims and objectives of Social Justice Ireland, which, I mean, I know where, I mean, the list is very long, <laughs> but even just, you know what I mean? You, you might just take us through, I suppose, some, some of the key, I mean, you mentioned enabling, you mentioned empowerment, you know, you might just take us through, I suppose, some of the, the, the key objectives of Social Justice Ireland. Okay, um, I suppose what we were trying to do was to deal with, issues around inequality and injustice and uh, and indifference, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you were asking me, uh, like, what are the issues that, the challenges that we face today, I think inequality, that that's one. Injustice, indifference would be a good little summary of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the injustice and inequality, poverty and unemployment and social exclusion would be big in there. But uh, also in there would be all sorts of issues around sustainability, economic sustainability, social sustainability, as well as environmental sustainability. And there would be um, a kind of a, a, a fair focus as well on issues around participation and governance, particularly on the issues of people having a say in shaping the decisions that impact on them. Uh, so I think that that kind of thing is 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 at the at the core, if you like. That they they would be the kinds of things that would be, if you like, driving uh, what we're doing. Uh, we work we're working for a society that would be tif- typified by justice and equality and respect and the truth and the 
priority of the common good. We're basically dedicated to tackling the root causes of injustice in our society. And we're, we're tackling it with independent, verifiable, evidence-based facts, if you like, okay? The analysis has, uh, there has to be a good solid analysis underpinning uh, our, uh, the, the, the conclusions that these particular things are the causes of the problems and therefore they need to be tackled. We believe very strongly that uh, while one has to deal with the symptoms, like the fact that somebody is hungry or whatever, at the particular moment that you're, that you're encountering people who are in that situation, it is critically important to also work for the elimination of that situation. And to do that, we have to tackle the cause or the causes. Very often these things have multiple causes. So that's part of what we would work for very strongly then. Um, tackling the root causes, discovering those root causes with this independent, verifiable, evidence-based analysis. And um, then putting that, if you like, um, through sort of, a, a sort of a filter, trying to develop fully tested and fully costed initiatives that would bring us to a more acceptable um, destination, if you like. So if you, if you were to sum it up, uh, we have this thing we often refer to as our simple ABC, uh, in which we say, A, uh, where are we? What's the actual analysis of the situation we're in? B, what do we want to bring this towards? Like, where do we want to go? Uh, do we really want to build a world where uh, the, 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 the people experience justice and equality and respect and uh, see the priority of the common good and so on? Okay, and the third, the C then, that's A, where we are, B, where we want to go, C, how do we go from A to B, okay? And um, we kind of put a lot of work into that, uh, trying to sort of not just see how that, uh, what initiatives might actually bring us towards such a de destination, but looking at the costs of those and how they can be funded and so on. So, for example, at the moment, there's a lot of talk in Ireland about uh, our services in health and education and social welfare maybe are not at the level that they should be at. Uh, like in other words, if you were to ask people what level should they be at, they'd probably say they'd accept that they should be at the average Western European level, okay? The problem is to achieve that, and we, we would accept that as a target, you then have to ensure that they get whatever you're proposing is paid for. So it's not uh, sensible to be promoting the delivery of those services, for example, European levels of services with American levels of taxation. Likewise, it's not sensible to be promoting the development of European levels of uh, average levels of infrastructure in things like uh, transport and housing and the broadband, childcare, the infrastructure that you need for a society and an economy to function effectively and to do so sustainably. Um, now, most Irish people, again, would argue for kind of European levels of initiative there. But on the other side, a, a lot of people in Ireland don't want to face up to the fact that that's going to cost you a bit more. It's not going to cost you an arm and a leg, but it's going to cost you a bit more. Uh, Ireland's total tax take is much lower than the European average. So even bringing us closer to the European average uh, would give us a lot of additional resources to bring the services and the infrastructure up to that level, okay? Yeah. Now, in doing the work that we're doing and we're making those kinds of assessments, providing that analysis, looking at the costings and so on, we would very strongly insist on our work being independent and being transparent and being free from outside influence by any political agenda. And I think that's very important. We are independent. We are very transparent in that all the analysis we do is in the public arena. Everything we publish is available free of charge on our website. And we are very free from sort of outside influence of, pol of political realities. And I think uh, if you look at the Irish political structure, I think most, maybe probably, I suspect, accurately, all the political parties would probably give out about us because we 
at some point or other have been pointing out that something or other that they're proposing doesn't stand up or hasn't been properly costed or they're planning to do uh, quite an amount with uh, far too less or too, far too little uh, financing and so on. That kind of thing. So I suppose they all, feel, when you look at it, they all feel a bit treated the same way, if, if you like, okay? That's really the hard bit though, isn't it? I mean, I think most of us can grasp the A bit. So most of us can sit down and have a conversation about where we are. Most of us can sit down and have a conversation about how things should be. It's that bit in the middle that's really, really difficult to, to come up with, as you said, realistic, costed, viable solutions. And I've just come off a webinar where it was on well-being. And one of the comments was trying to move away from some siloed thinking. And I think that's the, for me, that's the beauty of Social Justice Ireland is that it has a finger in every single pie. So a lot of organisations are either issue-based or they're maybe focused on a particular group, whereas Social Justice Ireland has an opinion on everything and everybody, <laughs> which is what's needed really, isn't it? And you can see it even in the political language that that sort of cross-departmental and interdepartmental, that's becoming more and more part of the, the, the discussions that health impacts housing, housing impacts education, education impacts on justice, so that somebody does need to be joining the dots. I mean, was that a very deliberate decision on your part? That was very deliberate because one of our experiences in the early years, I, I could say even the early decades, was that Irish policymaking was very siloed. Mm. That there were different departments and they kind of dealt with their own stuff and they didn't want anybody near it, but they didn't go interfering with anybody else. That's the way they kind of presented it. Um, the problem with that is you can get things happening like the financial crash, you know, so parts of the, uh, the some of the silos, they feel are doing fantastic, but then some of the others are going through the floor uh, and are not sustainable. So what we basically do is we interrogate um, everything we say that all, all, all the various issues around government and around poverty and equality, social exclusion, and all of those kinds of things, um, looking at the various policies. So we interrogate all of that, and we basically try to provide uh, more information about it, more accurate information, more up-to-date information. And we also try to inspire those uh, people dealing with those to to show that they can actually achieve maybe outcomes that they want to achieve, but maybe can't see their way towards. So we have over the years come up with a lot of different kinds of proposals that um, government in one form or another has taken up. Uh, and I think for the better, I, I, if I could give you an example um, in coming into the like in 1999, which is what, 22 years ago? Uh, now, <laughs> don't like say that. that. <laughs> I know, yeah. Uh, 22, 23 years ago, no. Um, but you, we were proposing the development of a new a structure within the Irish healthcare system called a primary care centre. Now, there were no primary care centres in Ireland at that time. We got agreement into the national agreement that was agreed in the, the partnership agreement in uh, the year 2000 that there would be five of these pilots during the three years of that agreement. And um, the idea was that if we could pilot them, people would see their value. The idea of a primary uh, care center would be as a kind of a one-stop shop, the first place at a local level that people would go rather than heading into the accident and emergency department of a hospital uh, if they cut their knee, like that type of stuff, you know? Um, and that um, you, you saw it, there was, it kind of was trying to bring the service closer to people by putting the center close to people and uh, saving the hospital from having to deal with stuff that it shouldn't be shouldn't be next or near a hospital because it isn't sort of serious medical uh, problems that were being dealt with. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, that was a time of plenty. There was a lot of money around. And that particular proposal was probably the only one, certainly one of them, if there were others, there were very, very few uh, that were not implemented in that three years. And that wasn't despite our best endeavor and our best uh, endeavor driven by and, and uh, commented on at a fairly high decibel level so that right across government and across the whole social partnership process, people were very familiar with the agreements section three 
stroke 10, stroke 19, 310, 19. Because over and over and over again, the department tried to bypass it and did all sorts of tricks to try and not implement it. Um, but eventually, here after the agreement, it was implemented. And that was what, 2004 into five. Here we are a decade and a half, more than a decade and a half later. The country is covered with primary care teams. Those primary care teams now are organized into, are, sorry, the, the, the centers and the teams uh, that are, sta sta are staffing them. They are now are organized into sort of little groups of four or five centers. And they in turn are organized into the, the what they call them, the healthcare networks. And there's nine of those uh, in the country. And uh, what we have is something in the region of 400 plus uh, primary care teen stroke centers. And they are the cornerstone and becoming more of the cornerstone uh, of uh, the healthcare system. And during the years, there was many a slip, twixt cup and lip on that. Uh, they result that like over and over again, there was talk about doing it, but then the money was kind of short and it wasn't, it wasn't provided for the delivery of the of these particular initiatives. But eventually, and credit where it is due, in the last two budgets, the that's budget of 2021 and budget of 2022, uh, the government has come across with the money. And that money is now allocated. And those that whole system is now being put in place. They finalized, like the, the bits are there and built, built, built up. But now you're going to have an integrated operation across the country. Now, that means, in effect, that you have at a local level, we'll have within the foreseeable future now, have everywhere in Ireland uh, a primary care center, primary care team, uh, and uh, access to that as the first step, if you like, the, the one stop shop to people that people will go to rather than heading off into the uh, accident and emergency uh, um, departments of the local hospital, wherever, however far away it may be. So what I'm saying that like is that that's us, an example of us with what is, I think, a good idea, though it's not the simplest idea in the world. <laughs> and we were putting prices on it from the very beginning and talking about the numbers that you'd need and uh, rolling it out and so on. But persisting with it, advocating for it, uh, improving any like when things didn't work out improving the proposal or improving the ideas about how it might be put into place so that's just one example of the kinds of things that we would do and have been doing for for years now i think getting a fairly decent result out of it as well okay so and involving an awful lot of people in that process like we don't do this obviously on our own um but we are kind of uh, if you like a key operator in interrogating the reality in offering ideas uh, about and, and proposals and costings and trying to inspire the system to actually go, go in this direction because it will produce a very, very positive outcome. And it, that's simply one example, but it, it shows you the way we operate and the fact that we get results as well, I think. I'm gonna pick up on what you said there, which was for years, new ways of, of looking at old problems and there's key pieces of work that, that are done on, on an annual basis within Social Justice Ireland. So would the budget pieces be probably the biggest, do you think? The budget project is certainly the, 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 the project that we're best known for. Yeah. I think for ourselves internally, it probably isn't the biggest piece of work we do every year that our socioeconomic review mm -hmm. that we publish, uh, Social Justice Matters is the title. Uh, that's a very substantial piece of work that is published every spring. And uh, it, it deals with all the kinds of topics in the socioeconomic, environmental, sustainability field that uh, we address and does it in a very systematic way and provides uh, the most detailed, uh, most recent uh, research. And uh, people can get access to an awful lot of material in that process. But the budget one is the one that we're best known for. Every year we Early on in the year, we start to analyze the situation as it is and seeing what could be put in the next in the, in the next budget to be presented by government. And what we do is by the middle of the year, we have published, that is by somewhere in June, we will publish 
uh, a detailed uh, analysis of the of we call it budget choices because it sets out the choices government actually has, together with recommendations from us about what we think the cho those choices should actually be. And what we do is we put that together as a comprehensive overall statement on the budget and provide the detailed proposals and provide the costings and provide on the other side, the sources of revenue that are required to fund it and basically produce a balance sheet. So we set out all our proposals and we do that within a, a responsible fiscal policy. And we do not work on sort of fiscal policy proposals that won't fly in the real world. Like I think we have a good reputation for uh, making proposals in the area, for example, of taxation that actually are viable and doable. But like we cover an awful lot of stuff. We cover health and housing and poverty and employment and the environment and transport. regional policy, transport, regional policy, rural policy, equality, the living wage, third world aid, ODA, official development assistance. And we'd always provide, the, all, we situate what we do within some kind of a framework, you know, that people can understand. And we also have a clear set of values that drive what we're doing. And um, we, we articulate those as well. And we would situate them, for example, within not just an analytical framework that is static, but also the, even looking to the future, taking things like the Sustainable Development Goals, for example, or the European Pillar of Social Rights, the various kinds of things like that, and integrating those uh, in a way that shows government how they might be integrated into mainstream policy, the Sustainable Development Goals, set by the United Nations to be achieved in every country in the world by 2030. And we are not doing all that well on it. Um, and a lot of, like most countries aren't doing all that well. Um, but it, it sort of the first one is no poverty, for example. So, uh, you know, and no hunger is the second one. So uh, you, you get the level that they're at. Ireland played a very big role in developing those SDGs, as they're known, the Sustainable Development Goals because Ireland was co-chair with Kenya of the committee that actually formulated this and made this set of proposals, developed those goals and had them approved at the UN. So we have, um, we have a good engagement there. We have a good track record and uh, it would be very good to see Ireland itself progressing towards implementing those sustainable development goals. So in doing that, what we're talking about then again is sort of trying to set those kinds of things out and, and being able to deliver on them. Now, that's the kind of budget project at the first half of the year. But the, what happens then is the budget is actually published in um, October. And when it's published, uh, we analyze it on the day it's published and on that night. And the following morning, we publish a detailed analysis and critique of the whole budget, like the whole outline, not, not just taking one or two issues that we might be interested in and leave all the rest behind, and we assess the budget overall, and we assess it under all the various headings of the, the kinds of proposals that we have made, and we come to conclusions about that. Now, we do all that in a very transparent way, because, for example, on the, when we do the budget choices, we publish the documents that we're, we're giving government, and we also hold public events that people can come to setting these out. And even during COVID times, we have sort of uh, done that and run webinars to show and showed people live and, and done, done it absolutely transparently. And then we've repeated that process always the day after the budget and maybe for the week after the budget in the sense that the morning after the budget, we've always had a, a sort of a seminar setting out our analysis and critique and setting out the numbers and making the arguments about the A and the B and the C that underpins the budget and whether or not the government is measuring up as we would see it uh, to the kinds of things that it needs to do and has the resources to do. So we'd be very well known for that. Yeah. Uh, that would be the biggest project by far. Sorry. I mean, a lot of a lot of the I suppose all the work we do is, as you said, it is transparent. It's all on the website, the weekly articles, all the research, all the publications, all the podcasts. But there's also, as you said, again, just to go back to that kind of empowerment aspect of it, 
there's a master's program um, that's being created specifically for, I suppose, practitioners of public policy and social justice. And Interestingly enough, that comes out of a, a thing like what, 25 more years ago, um, where people were a bit concerned that we were developing a set of skills, but that if anything happened to us, nobody else had the <laughs> skills. So we started an internship in the office uh, and people used to come and spend a week out every month for a year with us. Okay. And uh, we did that for 10 years and it, it worked pretty well. Um, one of the people who had actually done it um, became very convinced that we should turn it into a master's program. Now we were very reluctant because surely just the work involved, I suppose, and we didn't have too much experience of developing new MA programs. But anyway, we went ahead with it eventually and in All Hallows College. So it was a DCU degree um, and it was run out of All Hallows uh, for the for the last 10 years of its existence in all of All Hallows existence. Now, when that uh, All Hallows finished, um, or closed down, the trustees decided to close it down. It had nothing to do with our program, but we were left high and dry um, because at the time there was a kind of a, a blockage on third level institutions employing new people and so on. So DCU weren't prepared to kind of take any degrees out of uh, the out of All Hallows and into DCU because of the implications that they might have to take staff as well. So what happened then was um, we looked around and we talked to various places. And as a result, we reactivated um, some years ago, we reactivated the master's based in WIT. And it's a WIT degree. It's taught in Dublin. When it, that is when it's not online, because <laughs> since COVID came, it's online. We're, we're in year four now of that particular uh, experiment. And it's working out very, very well. And uh, we have a very full uh, participation level in it. But what we're trying to do there is to try to provide a, a series of skills, like from varying from social analysis and the capacity to do research to uh, looking at particular issues, um, like the whole range of issues that we would be looking at, like the budget and poverty and health and housing and communities and uh, rural and regional and a long list okay so they go to take people through a lot of that stuff uh, but also teaching skills around communications so they can communicate it in communications media but also advocacy as well the strength of advocacy so, so that they can actually advocate for a position and also uh, a, a lot of work around community and how to be part how to sort of deal with social change in community and deal with the processes of in, within communities and how they, those might be strengthened because we have a very strong belief that social uh, change has to be rooted in, in communities, and but in communities that are kind of well-rooted and have the capacity for the types of change that the modern world requires. It's one of the things that... Um, very clearly uh, out there at the moment is that Ireland is changing, not just Ireland, the world is changing. The whole world of work is changing. Like work is of today is a very different thing to what it was 30, 40 years ago. Um, and as a result, there's huge challenges and there's a need to recognize, for example, because of the changes we have, that, that um, there's an awful lot of work done for in the care economy and uh, like caring for older people, caring for children, caring for people who are not well, ill, people with disability and so on. But there's a whole lot of other work done that isn't paid for too, uh, a care of the environment that an awful lot of people are involved with. Just think tidy towns and all of the people involved with that in every town in Ireland, uh, doing it voluntarily, but doing, and doing a lot of work, although, if you ask them what work they did, they probably wouldn't name that because they don't get paid for it. Yeah, yeah. But that's a misunderstanding of the reality of work that like our world in the last half a century has kind of uh, narrowed down the meaning of work to be just paid employment. But society that doesn't have all these other things, that, that, like the caring ones I'm talking about, that doesn't have that those capacities isn't really a functioning society at all. 
another variation on what's worked like is people um, educate themselves. They put a huge amount of work into whether it's formal or informal. They do an awful lot of work on learning new skills, new capacities, new insights, whatever. Um, so we would, in Social Justice Ireland, believe that work should be seen as anything that contributes to my own development, the development of the household, the community, or the wider society. Absolutely anything, whether it's paid or not, as long as it's developing uh, something of, of use in that space and doing it in a sustainable way, it should, it should be recognized as work. And then because of the changing world of work, we have for decades been arguing that you can't talk about the new world of work or even you can't deal with the new world of work without engaging with newer ways of income distribution. Mm -hmm. So we've been arguing very strongly for the introduction of universal basic income for quite a number of decades now. Mm -hmm. And we'd be seen as probably the main advocates, certainly the longest running advocates in favor of basic income in Ireland. And uh, we'd certainly, now not on our own again, Basic Income Ireland does a very good job. And there's a number of individuals, um, people like John Baker, uh, from formerly from UCD, has done a huge amount of work in arguing for equality, arguing for basic income, stuff that he's written, but also advocated for for decades. Um, and he's not alone. There's a whole lot of other, uh, and Ryan and, and John Baker ran Basic Income Ireland for the last decade, and a whole lot of other people and organizations uh, promoting a basic income. But the interesting thing in recent years, and particularly since COVID, uh, the arrival of COVID, is that this has taken off right across the world. Now, it, ha it already existed in many places in the world, and there's a basic income earth network of people advocating this, and we actually had their global conference, held. we held it in Dublin in 2008. The uh, reality, of course, is that people are beginning to now latch on to the idea that the world of work is changing. It needs to be recognized that the world of work is going to be very different to what we have at the moment. But then that's going to leave a lot of people without money unless there is a change to how we distribute income. If we're only going to distribute income for paid employment, then we have a problem. Uh, in the long run, a very serious problem. So we've argued for a basic income in that context uh, as the best option to deal with the new world. There's other things we've argued for as well, the need for participation by all people in shaping the decisions that affect them. And we've been for years arguing for the development in Ireland of proper social dialogue and uh, engagement with all the various sectors of Irish society. And uh, that was done for quite a number of years. It got, it got lost in the reaction to uh, the crash in 2008-9, but it needs to be revived. And uh, I don't think that we're going to have a future that's viable unless we actually get to grips with this and are able to deal with it in some way or other in an effective way, if you like. Okay, so there, there are some of the things that we kind of argue for and like we try to combat poverty, we try to build communities, we try to address the issues, issues like housing and homelessness. We try to secure the future because an area that we do a lot of work on is pensions, for example, mm -hmm. as well as the kind of idea of the future of society. That pensions obviously be one of that. Another one that we work a lot on is um, people aging well at home. This is an issue, for example, that an organization like Alone has been very strong on, and we have worked with Alone on trying to see what can be done to promote that type of idea, uh, because everybody agrees that they prefer to age at home than to be aging in hospitals or, or in nursing homes or wherever, if that were possible at all. But then there's, as well as that, within the wider context, you have the revolutionizing of the health system, really, that I talked about earlier, with the coming of the best part of 500 primary care teams and uh, protecting the, the common good is an interesting kind of situation. Like we fought very much with the Troika who were here during the three years of the bailout. Interestingly enough, at that time, we met with the Troika 12 times over the three years, all their 12 visits in Ireland. And we, we 
we spoke with their on, online, you know, video calls with Washington, with their offices in Washington and Brussels and so on. A lot of what our view on it at the time wasn't covered in Irish media, although we produced a lot of material and so on uh, to argue the case. But two things subsequently are kind of interesting. One was that the IMF uh, changed its own view when it looked back on what how it had approached that whole, not just in Ireland, but in other countries as well, how it had approached that. And they basically concluded that they've got it wrong. And what they thought they should have done was much closer to what we actually had been advocating. Second thing, most of the world's major economists, maybe not that majority in Ireland, but certainly a, a majority of all the major economists in the world, a large majority of them, came to the conclusion that the way that whole, the, the austerity that had been imposed, and how that whole issue had been dealt with, the whole crash and so on, and the bailouts and all that, had been dealt with back in the day, was certainly not the way to go. And we saw that then when COVID came. And instead of going the way that they went a decade and more before, previously, uh, with, with their sort of uh, austerity approach, they set out absolutely the European Commission, the, you know, the IMF, the European Central Bank, like all the agencies that had been telling us to, austerity was the only way and all this kind of stuff, um, and basically refusing to engage with the kinds of things that we had been proposing. We're now actually the advocates of that those particular positions. So, from a perspective, from our perspective in social justice Ireland, it wasn't a bad place to be uh, in the sense of you know things that we had been advocating a decade before were slowly but surely being actually uh, adopted, and people had learned from the mistakes that they had made in that space. One other thing that we did and have done a, a lot, and I think it's important to note this, and that is the whole issue of a social contract because we're very clear that there is a social contract between the political system and society as a whole. And basically people might never think about this in formal, formally, okay? But they know that if they, you know, that the government's supposed to do this and that, and in return, I'm supposed to do this, that, and the other, and uh, the, the thing hangs together. And when you spell that out, you have what in, you know, political economy or philosophy or whatever can be seen uh, can be called a social contract. And we've done a lot of work in spelling out what a new social contract might look like, a social contract more appropriate to the 21st century. Because we had a very good social contract from the end of the Second World War up to the start of the 1980s. And during that time, you saw the emergence of an enormous amount of education uh, and an enormous amount uh, of housing and huge improvements um, across the, uh, much of the developed world. Then came the early 80s, and under the pressure and guidance in inverted commas of uh, some prominent economists and so on, um, people like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher decided that we should change this model, basically, this social contract, and that we should go for globalization. And out of that came this whole uh, sort of uh, approach where there was a loss of the kinds of things that had been prominent in the 25 years after, 35 years after the Second World War. Now, that whole neoliberal approach has basically fallen apart. People realize now, for example, after their COVID experience, that you can't basically expect to slim down the state and then expect the state to be able to deal with something like COVID. People realize now that the state was the only institution that was large enough and powerful enough to be able to deliver some solutions to that. Not perfect, mistakes were made, but at the same time, things were going in the right direction. There's now a need for a new social contract. And we would think that a social contract focused on generating five core outcomes uh, would, be, would be of great value to Ireland and not just to Ireland, but much of the world. So the five outcomes would be to, gen to generate um, a vibrant economy, decent services and infrastructure, second one. Uh, third one is just taxation. Fourth one, 
The fourth outcome would be good governance, and the fifth would be sustainability. However, people might say, ah, oh, sure, we're all in favor of that. But there's a but. They must all be done simultaneously. It's not a question of getting the economy right and everything else will follow. That simply doesn't happen. And no matter, I mean, I've been, we've been going on about this, but for years, but we're not alone in this by a long shot. There's a lot of people now realize that focusing on the economy without dealing with the others leaves you in a situation where, for example, if you don't deal with the services and the infrastructure and get good and decent infrastructure and services, you won't be able to drive and develop a vibrant economy. And if you don't have just taxation, you won't be able to pay for whatever you're trying to do. And if you don't have good governance, which involves people in the decision-making process, and good social dialogue and so on, people will refuse to go along with it. And that, if you don't actually put the sustainability issue at the core, you're going to wind up with either the environment falling apart under you, that's so how climate crisis hits you and you get, or, and the tide, the water level starts to rise and cities get flooded and all this kind of stuff happens and so much else. So that's the environmental issue will fall apart if you don't deal with sustainability and put it at the core. But the economy could fall apart as well. I mean, we saw Ireland in the much of the noughties pushing an economic model that was nonsense. It wasn't sustainable. It fell apart. We crashed and we had to wind up in a bailout. Well, we did wind up in a bailout. I don't know that we had to, but we did. The third area, though, that often gets missed is that for sustainability to be real, it has to be socially sustainable as well. Because if people are not happy in the society that you're proposing and that you're building and so on, society, economy, all the rest, if they're not happy in it, they won't go with it. So it has to be socially sustainable as well. So there are three parts to the sustainability issue, environmental, economic, and social. All three are essential. But there are five outcomes we think should be worked for, and they need all to be worked for simultaneously. Otherwise, there's a wheel missing off the bus, and the bus won't travel too far. When the wheels start, when one wheel comes off, others come off, and that's the end of it. Yes looked at the changes we've had societally, you've looked at the changes we've had politically, you've looked at the mistakes we've made, the learnings we've made. So I suppose my next question or my last question is what's next? <laughs> at one level I'd say to you, uh, I wish I knew. Um, I mean, it's straightforward enough from Social Justice Ireland's perspective. We will continue to do the work that we're doing and try to improve it all the time as we have done in the, in the past. And, we have a very good core team, and it does an enormous amount of work. It has worked extraordinarily well. Everybody working from home since the start of COVID, and uh, it has gelled very well. But I'm sure that's not the question you're asking me, really. It's a much wider question <laughs> about where society goes and so on. It seems to me that we're in a moment of great change, and that the, the, the kind of future is something that... Uh, we have to do some serious thinking about. The, the, the future is not predetermined. It's not something that's going to emerge simply because some automatic law of the economics or something produces it. No. The, the future that emerges will be a future based on the decisions that people take. Now, the problem is that some of those decisions may have disastrous consequences. And I think that that's the critical issue that we have to look for or be careful about. Because, for example, if we don't deal with the climate issue, if we don't deal with environmental sustainability, well, then we can say goodnight to the future. You know? And the danger there is that we'll wipe out the planet. We'll be so intent on ignoring what's going on. So that's, that's, that's a real danger. I mean, it's not something that I'm predicting will happen. It's not something that I hope will happen under any circumstance but but i think we have to deal with the reality but that's part of the reality if you like you know and that that that's something that we need to face up to so it's very very important to engage and to be sure that uh, you know we are we want to uh, to, to sort of work 
to, to deliver a future that is closer to that kind of those ideas that I talked about in the social contract, when talking about the social contract. I think the world of work is different. The world of income distribution is different. The world of participation is different. People now basically feel that they have a right, and I think that they have every right uh, to, to have to insist that they get these rights, that they, they should have enough income to live life with dignity, that they, they, they should have meaningful work, even in a world where there isn't jobs for everybody, because there won't be jobs for everybody in the foreseeable future. We also need relevant education. We need uh, basic health care. We need appropriate accommodation. We need genuine cultural respect, especially for minority cultures. And those types of things that need to be integrated uh, into what we do, whether that's at policy level or in our education systems or in the infrastructure that we build or the, surface, or the services that we provide. I would argue very strongly that in policy terms, we should all the time be working for a guaranteed basic income and guaranteed basic services for everybody, not one without the other. An income alone without decent services is as bad as decent services without an income. You, like again, you're back to the situation that you need both sides of the, of the, of the actual thing. We need to try to build a world, uh, a society characterized by justice and equality and respect and the truth that I mentioned at the beginning. And I think we're facing huge challenges. We have a challenge on the climate front. We have obviously in an Irish context, European countries, we have the Brexit reality, but we also have a digital revolution coming down the line. And we have, and it's, it's here already, I mean, in a way, you know, but it's going to intensify. We're going to have issues of substance uh, between different generations. We see that in the response to COVID. We see it in the response on housing policy. We see it in other areas as well. We're going to have serious issues between people who have resources and people who don't. And a lot of people insisting that the, in the future, everybody should have what's required to live life with dignity. That's a position I would support. And I think Social Justice Ireland supports as well, very much. There's no guarantee that that'll emerge, but it's the kind of thing that's worth working for. That's it. Um, like that future is possible if we make the decisions that will bring about that world. And that's absolutely the case. And that is why you need an organization like Social Justice Ireland <laughs> that basically can keep illustrating and advocating and analyzing and coming up with kind of the pieces that are required to, to ensure that we're moving in the right direction and can set out the kinds of things that need to be done or the options we have or the choices we have to make if we're to get in, go in that direction in the long term. Sean, I'd like to end on a high note as always. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was fantastic. More, Thank you. More than glad to do it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.